turn your Bibles this morning to the book of Job. Job chapter 36 this morning. We have one more sermon with Elihu, and then we get to hear from God straight for three weeks. And then we'll be into Advent season, Christmas. Uh, we've enjoyed the time with Elihu, and he has been a blessing, particular blessing to me. Uh, I've been super thankful for the lessons God has been using to teach uh, using him to teach me in my life. Uh, this morning, the imagery, the poetry that Elihu uses just is so vivid and uh, frankly attractive that, that I was pretty eager for us to be able to walk through the text this morning. Uh, I want to start this way. Have you ever been in the presence of a pretty serious storm? Uh, when I worked at Northland a number of years ago, uh, we sometimes they'd have tornado warnings and, and tornadoes not too far from there. Uh, so we're up there in northern Wisconsin. As one guy used to say, it's not the end of the world, but you can see it from there. Um, it is the middle of nowhere. And we had one summer storm come in, and the sky started swirling. They turned this weird, sickly green color. Uh, the uh, tornado warning sirens started going off, and so we're trying to get all the campers. Got hundreds and hundreds of campers there on, on the site at the time, trying to get them into shelters and into buildings. Um, and I ran out to check the climbing wall. It was a big four-sided I don't know, 35, 40-foot climbing wall that kids could climb and you'd belay them and those sorts of things. And I went up just to make sure there was nobody up there, uh, and, and there wasn't. So I was making my way back, and I was watching, and I was looking uh, at the camp office as I was walking back. And um, the camp director, Steve Pettit, and, and the program director, Trevor Gearhart, are waving at me to try to get me to hurry. Um, and, and so I was like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm moving. And... All several things happened at the same moment. Um, I, I saw when I looked at the office building, it looked like the largest flash bulb in the world had gone off and lit the entire area up. Uh, Steve Pettit and Trevor Gerhardt's eyes grew about you know twenty times big, and all the hair, the remaining hair that I have, I had more hair then, uh, not much more, um, all stood on end at the same time. And then I heard the loudest boom I'd ever heard in my life. And a lightning bolt had hit right behind me at this tree. And it scared the daylights out of me. And I probably could have beat Usain Bolt getting to the office at that point. Um, I was in a hurry. And I remember it was just kind of hunkering down in the office. And you could hear the wind outside. Um, and, and it just, it was scary. And we were desperately trying to make sure everybody was inside. Have you ever been through a fierce storm? I read an article about a couple, both of them in their 80s. I think he was 82, she's 83. They decided to stay in their home during Hurricane Ian that just hit down in Florida. They were in Fort Myers. The storm surge came through their home, uh, and they spent like six hours um, floating and swimming in their own home, just trying to survive. Uh, cut, bruised, uh, sprained ankles, from furniture floating around hitting them, just trying to weather the storm. Have you ever been in a storm? And the imagery that Elihu is going to use is that. It's the concept of Job, you've been in a storm. And, and, but why? why? Why does God use a storm? And how does he use storms? And what are you supposed to do when you're in the midst of this storm? And so the storms for Job, obviously, are the loss of all economic means, all resources, uh, his bank accounts are empty. Everything's been taken from him. Ten children killed in one day. 
Uh, his wife abandoned. His health is gone, covered in boils. Uh, friends, the three good counselors, uh, what a joke. They're terrible. And so he's been abandoned by everybody. That's the storm of his life. I don't know what the storm of your life is, but I can be confident all of us have gone through them. And I'm not comparing intensities. I think Job's, the extremity, the extreme nature of Job's storms are intended to speak into all of us. So whether it's economic, whether it is relational, or whether it's financial, Job covers all the bases. And so how can Job weather this storm? How can he survive? And interestingly enough, in the Bible, it's after the storm uh, that the rainbow comes to, to give us God's promised covenant. He'll never again flood the earth. And as Darren read this morning, it's after Jesus stills the storm. You see this, these great statements of Christ's love and his affection and, and tender rebuke of his disciples. Where's their faith? And the truth that we begin to see and that will be our big takeaway this morning is God's mysterious power is actually at work to draw people to himself. The storms of your life and of my life are intended, as the ESV translates it here, to allure us, to entice us, to draw us to him. But if you're anything like me and you're anything like Job, frequently you don't handle the storms all that great. And as the intensity ratchets up, you find ways to cope with it that are attractive and they feel like this is going to help me wrestle through my emotional turmoil. This will help to distract me. This will help to numb the pain that I'm experiencing. And Elihu is going to cover all that with Job in these two chapters. And so we're going to work our way down through the text this morning. And, and by God's grace, he can teach us how to trust him even in the midst of the storms. Um, so the first one that we'll want to look at is right here at the start of chapter 36, and it's the personal care of God. Now, the reason I, I, I'm convinced Elihu starts here is because one of the things Job's friends have said is God doesn't really care a whole lot. God is kind of this distant God. He is uh, what, what lots of people call a deistic perspective. In other words, God started this whole world like a clock. He wound it up, and he's letting it run, and the clock's going to run down, and when it runs down, then, then Armageddon or whatever will take place, the the apocalypse, and, and then that's it. But God isn't necessarily personally involved. And so the reason they're saying that to Job is because Job, in the midst of his storm, is wondering, why is God so angry with me? Why is God taking all this out of me? Why is God picking on me? You ever felt like that? God, why are you picking on me? Um, you know, it's, you feel like you're a walking Murphy's Law. Anything that can go wrong does go wrong. You ever, you ever been in that spot? Um, I've done jobs where I'm working on my car where it's like every bolt fights you. Everyone is stripped. Everything is hard all the time. Um, you, you go to do something. We, I was doing science fair with my son yesterday. We got all my work. I've done seven of them. We've got one more to go. <laughs> um, that's the storm of life anyway. But, but it's like everything that can go wrong does go wrong. It's like, come on, can this not just... And that's how it feels. And so Job's complaint is, God, why are you picking on me? And his friends are like, God doesn't even actually care that much about you, Job. Like, this is just the way the world works. Do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. So get over yourself. This isn't personal. Well, Elihu doesn't believe that, and neither does Job. So Job 36, 1 through 7. Elihu continued and said, Bear with me a little, and I will show you, for I have yet something to say on God's behalf. I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my maker. I'm going to pause there. That's, jo that's Elihu's whole point, these two chapters. He wants to prove that God is righteous. He is on mission 
to rescue the reputation of God from the midst of the pain because Job has begun to drift. Job who said, naked I came from the womb, naked I'll return, blessed be the name of the Lord. And uh, why should I be angry at God who's given me blessing, who now brings me cursing, has drifted. And in chapter after chapter, we've, saw, we've seen that Job has questioned, but his questions have become accusations. We saw that last week. And so Elihu wants to say, no, God is righteous. He, he's preaching to Job what Job was trying to preach to his heart. But frankly, Job had gotten hoarse in preaching and had run out of words. Rabbit trail. That's always helpful, right? Maturing believers preach to their hearts instead of listen to their hearts. Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's not original with me. Secondarily, though, we all need others preaching to our hearts also. Because we get tired of trying to say truth to ourselves. And so Elihu is saying truth to Job that Job has tried to say to himself and has grown weary in it. So verse 4, For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Elihu is saying, actually, I've gotten this from God himself. And, and other of his friends have claimed that. We can trust that Elihu is actually honest here because what he says is, is right. Whereas the friends claimed that, but what they said was wrong. Just because somebody says this is a word from the Lord doesn't mean it is. Check it by the Bible. Verse 5, Behold, God is mighty, does not despise any. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne he sets them forever, and they are exalted. I just want to remind you that way back in the first part of Job, Job chapter 1, verse 8, God's the one who brings Job up. God is the one, and Job 1, 8 says this, The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil. Now, I can't park there this morning, because we preached Job 1 several months ago. But I just want to say this. Job's friends are saying, God is not personally invested in you, Job. This is just the way the world works. You must have done something bad, because you've got something bad. Start doing something good, and life will go good for you. And Job, is, his whole heart, and, and the hurt of it, and honestly, any person in the midst of a storm is why does God not love me? Why is he hurting me? And his friends are saying, Job, God, that's not the way God functions. He's not on mission for you. But way back in Job 1 verse 8, God was speaking the name of Job in the throne room of heaven. He cares. He cares about you. He cares about me. I want to take time and soak in that reality this morning. We don't have time, but enough just to remind you of that. It's, it's like sitting next to that uh, elderly lady on the plane that time, and it was an hour and a half flight, and I looked at photos for an hour and a half of her grandchildren. It's like, okay, here we go. Now, that's a lot better than the one lady I sat next to who just wanted to show me pictures of her fur babies. I can look at you know, I, I'll, okay. Okay. You know, full disclosure, pictures of kittens are cute. I, I got to own that. But there was just a joy in her and a pride in her and a delight in her over these. I don't know anything about these kids. And, and frankly, some of them weren't the cutest kids in the world, but they were to her, right? She loves these kids. And so she wants to lighten them. And she wants to say their names and she wants to speak over them. It's like when I went through my dad's toolbox and I found something I whittled when I was eight years old that he had hung on to for 40 years. It's, it's, that, it's that moment when you're talking to someone and all they want to delight, what they delight in is what, they comes, what comes out of them. One of the things we try to teach our kids in social interaction, right? Like, 
like how do you talk to people? Find what they love and somebody will talk about it for a long time. God in heaven, who created the heavens and the earth, who created the entire universe, who spoke everything new into existence. There was nothing. He was just in the fullness of his own glory. He is speaking Job's name. Does he care? Of course he cares. Elihu wants to prove it, though. He, he uses a very interesting phrase there. In verse 5, he says, Behold, God is mighty, does not despise any. What does that mean? It, it, it means that he does not think little of any person. It's his way of saying that for God, we are not chess pieces. We are not toys, we are treasures. God is not constantly manipulating each one of us to win a game. When you play chess, and I'm no chess master, uh, I, I, I enjoy the game, but I would get beaten by a lot, lots and lots of people, right? So, but when you play chess, sometimes you give up pieces to gain position. You sacrifice a pawn, a bishop, and uh, you'll sacrifice even your queen if it, if it can win the match. And, and so you'll sacrifice things in order to get an advantage. It, we, we do that in lots of things. In sports, you'll have a batter take a hit because so he can get the base. And I had a coach when I was playing soccer. He'd be like, go take that kid out. I'd be like, coach, I'm going to get a red card. He said, I'd rather play a man down than, than this guy keep coming in. You sacrifice, but that's not the way. Satan wants us to think that way. Evil friends want us to think this way, that God is just manipulating you. The pain of your life or my life, the, the storm of your life or my life, is just so God can win some cosmic chess match. And Elihu says, no, he does not despise any one of us. We are not toys, we are treasures for God. He presses on and he, he supports it even further. He says, he does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, with kings on the throne, he sets them forever, and they are exalted. This is radically different than Job's friends. Job's friends have claimed, Job, if you'll repent, then God will give you, it's like playing the country song backwards. You get your wife back, your money back, your, right, your dog. You get everything back, Job. Elihu doesn't say that. Where does Elihu point? Who can reign forever? This is an eternal perspective. He's telling Job, Job, God is on mission in your life, in anyone's life who's going through a storm. He is on mission to do something that has eternal ramifications the new testament points us to that same reality the saying is trustworthy if we've died with him we will also live with him if we endure we will also reign with him if we deny him he will also deny us it's actually fascinating if you were to study how frequently trials and suffering are linked to our eternal state I think the easiest way to understand it is the parable of the four soils. Jesus makes it very, very clear. You want to find out who someone is, put them in a trial. And trials will reveal genuine faith. They'll strengthen genuine faith. They'll purify genuine faith. But they'll also reveal if someone never believed. When the trials of life get so severe, people say, I can't believe in this God anymore. The reality is they never believed to begin with. It's not that people lose their salvation, it's revealed that they were never saved. It's painfully difficult and, and stunning to any of us when we've spent time with a person, we've convinced they're saved, all of a sudden a trial comes into life and, and they become agnostic, atheistic, they turn from God, they turn from obedience, they turn from living with him and it's stunning to all of us and we're like, wait a minute, do they even believe? And this is exactly what Timothy is even pointing, or Paul is pointing out when he writes to Timothy. 
It's what Elihu is pointing out, that God is going to put you through storms of life, and storms of life are going to take place, and your world is going to come crashing down around you. Will you yet believe? This is what Elihu is going after. And, and so there is a very personal nature to this. And so what he's telling us, Elihu is telling us, is that God is personally invested in each person's life, and you're not a chess piece, what is he doing then? God is at, on mission to draw people to himself, and the righteous will be drawn to him. And of course, it's his righteousness he puts on them, and the wicked will run from him. This is what's going to happen. Storms are going to reveal. Now, that would seem, and I'm going to be very honest with you, very, very unfair. He's God. <laughs> he, hasn't, he hasn't had to go through what I've gone through, right? Wouldn't that be our temptation to believe that and to think that? Yeah, but God, you didn't have to deal with losing your job. You haven't had to deal with losing a friend or a spouse or a child. You haven't had to deal with losing your health or your finances. You haven't had to deal with the things I've had to do. You haven't had to deal, you haven't had to deal with any of this. And the reality is it's not just personal care, but it's actually personalized experience. The question is, he starts to, to unpack for us this difference of how the wicked respond to storms or the lost, we can think of it this way, and how the saved respond to storms. Verse 8, if they are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work, their transgressions, that they are behaving arrogantly. And so in other words, one of the ways God uses storms is to reveal that you're a sinner. You can't help yourself. You can't deliver yourself. The greatest storm that ever ravaged this earth, the flood, revealed he says it shows people that they're sinners. But there's another kind of response. Verse 10, he opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. If they listen and serve him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. And so there's a, you can respond to the storms of life through being taught and, and understanding God is teaching me something. Elihu has already said that God speaks to us. He speaks to us through our conscience, through our suffering in the midst of storms. Will you listen to the voice of God even in the midst of your storm is, is what he's saying here. But if they do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. The godless in heart cherish anger. They do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth. Their life ends among the cult prostitutes. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. What he's saying is, it's, it's like the storms get so bad. I don't know about you. I, I, years ago, I was studying Galatians 5, walking in the Spirit. And I, there's a verse there. I think it's Galatians 5, 17. If you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Walking in the Spirit is very simply loving God and loving others. You can boil it down to that. It's not some mystical thing. It's God's spirit in you, loving God, loving others. When you do that, you won't walk according to the flesh. And I realized one of my tendencies is when I would give in to temptation or sin, I would feel very defeated and I'd be like, well, what's the point? So maybe you give in a little bit and then it's like, well, I just go full blast. And the best way I could illustrate it was um, when I was working construction with guys, and all the guys, they all smoked marble lights. That was their big thing. That's what they all smoked. That's what they're all into. And they were always all trying to quit. And so it's kind of comical, and, and I don't mean this in a mocking way, but like different ones were trying to quit at a different month. And I'd always, I'd always think, man, if y'all could just get on the same month, you'd help each other out. Because the problem is one guy's trying to quit, the other four guys aren't that month, and so they're constantly tempting him, tempting him with a cigarette. And it's just like, come on, guys, can we not just all get on the same page? But what I noticed the tendency was, and, I, and I'm very clear, I'm not judging because this is my own flesh bent. The tendency was the guy would be like, okay, just give me one cigarette. Man, by the end of the day, he's back to a two-pack-a-day habit. 
Because it felt so defeated. I had one, what's it matter anymore? You ever feel that way? I've already failed, might as well go whole hog. Right? And what Elihu is saying is the storms of life will do that sometimes. The storms of life will reveal our flesh tendencies. And so he talks about them going even to the cult prostitutes and they die there. It's like these guys in the storms of life, it's almost like the thinking is this, God must not love me, so who cares anymore? I should do whatever's going to make me happy and I'll die that way. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow I'll die. But then there's this other response and the other response would be to listen and to obey to respond in a righteous way. And so, can God really understand, though? I mean, this seems distant. He's just said it's close to us, but it seems so distant to us. And the reality is he can't understand because Jesus has been touched with our infirmities. He's acquainted with griefs. He has suffered those things that we have suffered. In verses 10 through 11, Elihu writes this, he opens their ears to instruction, commands their return from iniquity. In other words, God speaks and shouts through suffering and calls us away from our sinfulness. Our reaction in the midst of suffering can either be to run to greater sin or run to God. Which one are you going to go? And what's fascinating is Isaiah quotes this. Now, Isaiah is a wonderful book. We'll, we'll, by God's grace, work our way through it at some point. But there are four suffering servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And they're, they're mysterious. Who is this guy? And Isaiah's preaching them to the, to the nation of Israel. And what he's holding out is this servant is going to come and he's going to deliver you. And you would, if you're reading Isaiah and you don't know any better, right? You don't have the spoiler alert of who it is. You're reading it. You're like, who's this guy? Who's going to show up? Who's the servant? Who's the Messiah? And by the time you get to the one that we're most familiar with, Isaiah 53, um, where he is uh, wounded for us, and right, he's bruised for us, and our iniquity is laid on him. Then we suddenly realize, oh, this is Jesus. But back in Isaiah 50, it's not totally clear yet who it is, but he says something fascinating about the Messiah, about Jesus. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, I turned not backward. He's actually quoting Job here. So Job is saying this, in the storms of life, God is calling people to listen to him. Listen to me. He whispers in our pleasures, C.S. Lewis said, but he shouts in our suffering. It's intended to rouse a dying world. And Elihu says, as God is shouting in the midst of the storms of your life, are you listening? The wicked don't, but a righteous person opens their ear to hear what God has to say. And Isaiah quotes that, that's what the servant is like. The Jesus then, in the storms and suffering of life, tuned his ear to hear God. That's who he's listening for. Now we read that, and so what he's doing, what Isaiah is doing, and so we start tra tracking this theme then through the Bible, is Job is saying righteous people listen to the storms. Isaiah says the most righteous one, the Messiah, listen to the storms of life. But then we can fast forward all the way to the New Testament. And Hebrews says this fascinating thing about Jesus. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus learned obedience? Well, as hard as this is to wrap our brains around, Jesus, who is truly God and truly man, he comes 
And he pours deity into humanity, and he's born a baby. Fully God, fully man. Jesus learned how to talk. He learned how to walk. Right? Neither of those are sinful, right? You don't, it's not a sinful process to learn how to talk. It's not a sinful process to learn how to walk. Every one of us, though, it was a sinful process for us to learn how to obey. It was. If you had a good mom and dad, you walked over with a fork to the outlet, because maybe you were st- stupid like little Steve. You go stick the fork in the outlet. Dad says, don't do it. You got to do it anyhow. Dad smacks your hand. You learned obedience, hopefully. Uh, I think of the <laughs> years ago, we had a family at our church. They had a little boy, and he kept putting his hand up on the stove. Dad kept saying, don't put your hand on the stove. Don't put your hand on the stove. He put his hand on the stove one day, and it was hot, and he got some light burns on his fingers. I said, oh, man, I bet that taught him. He goes, nope, two more times before he learned the lesson. We learned obedience through disobedience and pain because we're sinful people. Jesus, though, had never sinned. And so how do we understand him learning obedience? Maybe the best way you could think of it is his obedience was proven through suffering. Uh, it's like if you have a ball team that, that, that everybody's like they are the best football team out there. And I don't remember what year the Miami Dolphins did this, but they had the perfect season. So you can argue preseason that they're the perfect team, they're the best team, but it's proven, proven through a season where they never lose. Then they're perfect. Jesus was perfect from the beginning. His suffering at which at no point in time did he ever sin, it's proven. So his obedience was proven through his suffering. In other words, what it's saying is when the storms of life come, you and I are either going to respond like the wicked or we're going to respond like the most righteous one. But get this now, Jesus then knows exactly what it's like to suffer. And he knows what it's like to suffer puzzling pain. In other words, Jesus knows what it's like to suffer for something he did not deserve. Job was never perfect. Job didn't deserve to lose 10 kids his wife, his health, and all of his belongings, and all of his respect, and all of his friends. He didn't deserve that. God even backed it up and said that he didn't deserve this. It's puzzling pain. Some of you are going through pain right now you don't deserve. You're not saying you're perfect. You're not saying you didn't have done anything wrong. But you don't deserve to be hurt the way you're being hurt right now. It's really important. Elihu is pointing ahead to someone he would never meet in person until he got to glory. We can look back. He is pointing ahead. Jesus knows what it's like to be in the midst of the storm. He gets it, friend. He understands. And so and then he points to Job's puzzling pain in verse 16. He also allured you out of distress into a broad place where there was no cramping. And what was set on your table was full of fatness. He, these are all past tense. In other words, he's looking at Job. If I could put it in modern-day language, if we're going to look at you, we'll, we'll say John, right? So here's, you got John, and, and John's going through intense suffering. He's having terrible things. And he's like, where is God? Why doesn't God love me? Why am I suffering? Why are bad things happening to me? I, I'm not saying I'm perfect, Steve, but, but I don't deserve this. And it would be like you look at him and say, John, tell me about when Jesus saved you. Tell me about how he drew you to himself. Oh, there was a time I was sitting in church and I heard a sermon and I just immediately saw how sinful I was and I was 
my thoughts were filled with how wicked I was and how disobedient it was and how I, I wrestled with lust or anger or bitterness or wrath or, or stealing or what, whatever it is. And there were people in my life I was so angry, I wish they would just drop dead. I'm not a murderer, but I wish they And God just convicted me of my sin and he drew me to myself out of my sinfulness, out of my realization that I'm a wicked person. He drew me to myself. And it's all past tense, right? Because it happened before. But that happened years ago. What about the storm right now, Steve? And I would look at him and say, listen to me, if God spoke out of the storm of the reality of your sinfulness, he is speaking to you now. That's what he's saying to Job. Job, did God not draw you to himself out of your distress at some point? We don't even know the backstory. We don't know how Job got saved. We don't know when Job came to, came to God. We don't know when Job had realized he was a sinner. We know that he had when we arrived at Job. We don't know when that happened. We've got a 70-year-old guy. We don't know when this happened. But Elihu knows that it happened. Whether he even knows the details, he knows this. If you are righteous in the midst of suffering, you don't lose your salvation. It's revealing whether or not you're a real believer. So Elihu's looking at Job and he's seeing this theological drift, but he doesn't think that Job's lost. He thinks Job's drifting. He needs reminders of truth. It's an open-ended way of him looking at Job and saying, Job, if God has done it before, isn't he doing it now? If he's spoken before, isn't he speaking now? If he's cared for you before, isn't he caring for you now? If he's known you personally before, doesn't he know you personally now? That's the setup. From verses 17 through 21, though, he starts addressing how this happens. Well, well, then how do I understand that in the midst of the storm? Because it seems very chaotic. And really his point is this, is that, some of you didn't write that down, but God's methods are mysterious. And, and, and Elihu is going to acknowledge that it's hard to figure out. You ever sat under a teacher and you can't figure out what they're talking about? I remember, I remember in Bible college one time, I was assigned all these books to read by Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer is just an amazing apologist and, and uh, walked with God, and he had this whole uh, organization in Switzerland that, that he founded, and you could go there, and it was this, if I can say, I don't know how to describe it, but this, it was like the righteous version of a Christian hippie. So they're not smoking pot and drinking, and it's not free love. But it's like this, we're going to be at peace, and we're going to study the word, and we're going to figure out how to evangelize our generation. That, that was the goal. Francis Schaeffer, like, I had never read anybody before where I'm, like, having to read every page, like, five times. I'm like, what? I don't know if that's a Steve Stupid problem or a Francis Schaeffer hard writing problem. I'm going to go with Steve Stupid problem. Because everybody else is like, Francis Schaeffer is amazing. I'm just, like, sitting in class, like... Oh, man, they got that out of that? I don't know what we're talking about over here. You ever talk to a teacher? You ever, ever been in a class and you're like, I, they cannot explain this to me? That's how Job feels. I, okay, but what God is doing doesn't make any sense to me. You're telling me God's speaking to me. Killed all 10 of my kids. Lost every. What exactly am I supposed to get from that? And Elihu basically says, God's way of working is really mysterious. And in the mystery of it, you're trying to figure it out, Job. What you have done is you've come up with some coping methods, and they're really bad. When you and I are suffering, we will all try to find ways to cope. We could talk about it um, in distractions, right? How do we cope with distractions? Uh, and, and it's usually what we do is we take a good thing and we, and we make it bad, right? We take a good thing and we do too much of it. You should eat. Food can be coping. Um, you should have fun. Go, go watch a movie. Watch, I don't care. 
but then we become addicted to it, right? And so I can't turn off the show. I can't. I stay up too late. I, I can't function. Um, we'll take things that God intended for good, medicine, and abuse them because we're trying to cope. So, so you, have, you have distraction methods, you have relationships. People just bounce around to the next relationship, next relationship, next relationship because they're trying to cope. They like that, that newness feeling, right? When everybody's in love, ah, it's amazing. Um, and it, so it's coping mechanisms. So we can talk about those, but what Elihu does, I think is very helpful, is instead of making the preacher have to list to you like 35 different coping mechanisms, he gives us three categories. And so then it's up to you and I include me, it's like I'm sitting there with you at this point, up to us to figure out which one are our bents, which one do we, are we prone to, and how do we run to them. And so he gives these three coping methods that Job has used because Job can't figure out the mystery of what God's saying, and life, frankly, stinks, so what am I supposed to do? You are full of the judgment of the wicked. Judgment and justice seize you. Now, when you read through your Bible, you'd be like, how does he know that this is when he's talking to Job? Just a quick reminder, you don't have to know Hebrew to read your Bible, obviously, but he switches the pronouns from plural to singular. When he does that, that's how we can tell he's talking specifically to Job. It's just we don't have that kind of, of pronoun usage in, the, in, the, in English. So if I say you, I'm talking to all of you, right? If I look over at my son, I say you, you got to have the context to know, am I talking to plural or singular? Well, thankfully, Hebrew helps us out better than that. So he's talking to Job here. You are full of the judgment of the wicked. Judgment and justice seize you. Beware lest wrath entice you into scoffing and let not the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. His point is you've begun to deal with the suffering like a wicked person. Will your cry for help avail to keep you from distress or all the force of your strength? That's number one. You ever gone through, you, you and I cope with the storms of life like lost people when we think, let me grit my teeth and get through this. This is the entirety of my life. From very big ways to very little ways. It is so broken, I'm just going to be honest with you. I would sit as a kid, a teenager, I'd have to wear a suit to some function. It's how weird I am. I would sit, it's hot, summertime, I remember we were at one event, everybody's going to wear suits, all the guys are taking their suitcases off, all this kind of, because it's just, it's blistering. And I made a decision in my mind. I didn't care if I sat there and sweated till I passed out. I wasn't taking my suit coat off. Just to prove to myself how hardcore I could be. I know, I'm an idiot. I get it. Doing soccer practice, everybody else going to drink water? I'm not going to drink your water. I'm going to prove how hardcore I am. Emotionally. I'm not going to cry. You can't make me cry. Try to imagine raising a kid like that. I am the definition of the strong-willed child. Grip my teeth. So there's no suffering I can't grip my teeth and get through. What you learn when you try to do that is you learn how to compartmentalize really good. You put everything in emotional different boxes. You stick them on the shelf. Maybe you come back to it. Maybe you don't. I just want you to know at some point in your life, and it may happen before you're 48, it may happen after. You go to open that closet, and it's like a Fred Flintstone moment. You open it, and everything comes crashing out, and you get hit on the head with a bowling ball at the end of it. You can only put so much in the closet. It's a wicked, lost person way of dealing with the sufferings of life. It doesn't work. It doesn't produce health, spiritual health, mental health, emotional health. It's really, really bad for you. 
I'm going to grip my teeth and get through it. I'm going to put on my big boy britches. There's nothing you can do that's going to be too bad. And so let me just grip my teeth and get through it. He says, Job, this is what you started to do. Do not long for the night when people vanish in their place. Coping mechanism number two, ultimately for Job, it was depression that led to even suicidal thoughts and ideations. He said, God, I'd rather you kill me than me have to live through this any longer. It's withdrawal. Withdrawal can be a spectrum. Withdrawal can be the extreme of suicidal uh, attempts to suicidal thoughts and ideations, to removal from loved ones or friends, to removal from society. It can go all the way down um, and to agoraphobia. I'm just going to be inside. I'm never going to go out. Withdrawal. I'm going to deal with the storms of life from withdra- by withdrawal. I'm going to pull back from people. I've been hurt by people. I don't want to be hurt no more. So the solution to me not being hurt no more is I don't build relationships anymore. Everybody becomes surface and then I don't have to worry about getting hurt anymore. It's withdrawal. Coping mechanism number three is anger. Take care. Do not turn to iniquity for this. You have chosen rather than affliction. The language that he's using there is as someone that's mad. He's almost booking into verse 18. Beware lest wrath entice you into scoffing. And let not the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. In other words, the greatness of the ransom that Elihu has already referenced as he's pointed ahead to the Messiah. In other words, it's this. God, if you saved me to make me suffer like this, I'd have almost rather you not save me. I'm so mad with what God is doing. I'm angry. So these are your three broad categories. I don't, I don't know. I know this, every single one of us in this room in the midst of suffering has turned to one or more of these. Every single one of us. I know that because none of us are Jesus. We're all sinners. And maybe you have not gone to the extremes of anger and wrath or of suicidal ideation or thoughts or grit your teeth and I can just get through anything. Maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum where it's pretty light for you. It's a mild irritation. It's not wanting to be around certain people. I I don't know. I just know this. These are the three broad categories. Elihu is like the best biblical counselor on suffering you'll ever read. When you come into someone's life and they're wrestling, don't come in judging that they are doing it, but be aware that there are going to be events to this because they're a normal human person. Elihu is pointing this out to Job. He's revealing this to Job not to destroy him, but so that he can ultimately point to what will help him. So, so then what am I going to do? So now I've just said God's mysterious. He's wanting to shout to you in the storm. This is the wrong way of dealing with this. Let's talk about the storm then. He does it in a couple different ways. He says first a natural mystery, then he'll talk about God speaks, then go back to natural mystery. Let me just walk us through this somewhat quickly, but you'll be able to see this as we work our way through it. Verse 26, he says this, Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. For he draws up the drops of water, they distill his mist and rain. Whence the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thunderings of his pavilion? Behold, he scatters his lightning about him, covers the roots of the sea, for by these he judges peoples. He gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with the lightning, commands it to strike the mark. It's crashing, declares his presence. The cattle also declare that he rises. You're like, what in the world is he talking about? He's talking about actually the water cycle. He's talking about how God runs the earth. Do you know we didn't, water cycle? You're like, uh, Steve's been sixth grade science, been a long time. You got water in the clouds, right? 
The water builds up in the clouds. It drops down onto the ground, mist, rain, thunderstorms, whatever, hits the ground. It's fresh water, uh, hits the mountaintops, flows all the way down, streams, rivers, valleys, works its way into the oceans. Um, It evaporates along the way, and and the evaporation goes up and condenses into clouds. And we have this beautiful cycle whereby God constantly turns salt water into fresh water that makes us live. It's a water cycle. Do you know when they figured out the water cycle? It wasn't until 1800. They could not figure out how this worked. Now, I say they like I was somehow going to figure it out, right? Those dumb scientists, what are they doing, right? Um, it, like, seriously, if Steve was a scientist, we still wouldn't know. It'd be 2022, right? But, but it was 1800. My point is this. When he's talking about this, he's not trying to teach you the water cycle. He's just saying there's the mystery of it. How does this work? Job had actually referenced the same water cycle earlier in the book to point to the mysterious power of God. What Elihu is saying is God works in mysterious ways. Just look at the way the world works. And if we, if we had time this morning, we could talk about fractals. Fractals is a specific design, and you find it everywhere from seashells to the structure of leaves to the structure of snowflakes. And it's like God's thumbprint. It's like the thumbprint of an artist on the globe that he's made, the, the mechanism of the eye. How does all this happen? How did this come to be? Oh, yeah, there was this, this massive explosion that whew, everything drew together because black holes collapsed, exploded, and that's how we got order. Because that's exactly what happens. If you were to blow up a watch shop, all the parts would go flying in the air, and they'd all assemble them as a Rolex. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that doesn't work. Stephen Hawking, one of the most brilliant astrophysicists ever. Oh, you know what the real answer is? Aliens. In other words, an outside force must have made it. You're right. You just got the identity of who made it wrong. It wasn't aliens. It's God Almighty. Elihu is saying God works in a mysteriously powerful way. We're going to come back to the first five verses. You'll see how it ties in in just a moment. But go to 6 through 11 and 37. For to snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour, he seals up the hand of every man, that all men whom he made may know it. Then the beasts go into their lairs and remain in their dens. From its chamber comes the whirlwind, cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given. The broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all he commands them on the face of the habitable world. In other words, like the snow, cold comes. You can't, look, our, our meteorologists, they can't even tell us what the weather's going to be now. Like they do their best. God bless these guys. It's nice, but... Come on, you can't control it. That's his point, is there's all this mystery you cannot control. So you have the natural water cycle, you have the wind and the cold. The beasts simply respond to what's happening. It gets cold and snowy, and their, their, their body, the way God has made them, they simply go into their layers. They hunker down to get through the storm. Deer know when it's a fierce rainstorm, they hunker down. Animals know that. They just, they just bundle up. They, they, they shelter from storms. They can't put a fire on for warmth and they can't put on more clothes. Their best response, listen to this, their best response in the midst of the mysterious storm is to do what? Hunker down and wait it out. There's two points in all that. First, God uses his mysterious power to judge and to bless. Go back to 3631. Let me show you this. For by these he judges people and he gives food in abundance. The mysterious storms of God, the mysterious power of God, blesses the righteous and judges the wicked. The same storm, the same rain can do both at the same time. Hurricane Ian, when it washed through, my, my family went to Sanibel Island a number a few summers ago for summer vacation. It's like completely destroyed. 
And there was a faithful pastor there of an evangelical church. He wrote to his folks, and their, their church is wiped out. Who knows what even people will respond uh, or return to it. They're trying to hold services over on the mainland near Fort Myers. What in the world are they going to do? And do you know what it is? The same storm that washed everything out is also becoming a wonderful testimony of those who trust in Jesus. So point one is God's mysterious power is used to judge and bless. Point two, God controls all of it. God's in control, not us. He makes this specific point to Job. In verses one through five, he gives us two teaching moments for Job, which are teaching moments for us. Look at how frequently he comes back to thunder and lightning, verses one through five. That this also, my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice. He just talked about the thunder that splits the sky. Now he's saying, this is God shouting to you, the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heaven, he lets it go. His lightnings to the corners of the earth. After it, his voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice. He does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. Three times he likens God's voice to thunder, two times to lightning. Thunder will shake you to its core, and it leaves, lightning always leaves a mark. This is what he's saying to Job. This is what I say to us this morning. The mysterious storms of our life. Listen, God is working in a way that can either turn to blessing or judgment for you. He actually says it explicitly if you come all the way down to verse 13. Whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. When Jesus gives the parable of the four soils and the pressures of this world and the sun beat down, some plants wither. And they fade away, and it reveals that the, the seed of the gospel never took root in their hearts. But other people, no matter the storm, Jeremiah 17, the storms reveal those who are rooted in Christ. Storms are good that way. Secondarily, God's mysterious power shows he's in control and not us. He actually asked Job a series of questions to prove this. Hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know how God lays his command upon them and causes the light of his cloud to shine? In other words, can you make the lightning and thunder? Do you know the balancing of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? Why do some clouds rain and others don't? Do you control the water cycle? You whose garments are hot when the earth is still because of the south wind. In other words, when you're sitting there hot in the middle of the day, they don't have air conditioning back in. What do you do? You just got to sweat it out. Do you control the weather? Can you control when it's hot or when it's cold? Or what do you do? You put a coat on or you take a coat off? In other words, you've got to live through it. Can you, like him, spread out the skies hard as, cast, as a cast metal mirror? Job, can you control any of this? Job, God's mysterious power shows he's in control and not us. This is so important because the bad theology of Job is do good, get good. What that means is you and I control God. If I do enough good, the storm goes away and my life gets better. That's not the way it works. We can't control it. The reality is all those bad coping mechanisms are attempts to control. That's why they don't work. It's like we're trying to become God of our own suffering. I don't want to listen to what he's saying. I want to be in control. And so my anger... My withdrawal, these are ways of controlling, just getting through it. I can get through anything. This won't break me. It's how I'm going to deal with the puzzling pain of life. 
Broken coping mechanisms are feeble attempts to control the pain of our life. You know, they've done studies for folks that are in deep pain. The effectiveness of pain pumps. It's when you're, it's like after surgery, maybe some of you have experienced this, been with somebody, they got a little pump with a trigger on it, you hit the trigger and it gives you a dose. They found that that helps people actually handle pain better. Because, and I know what you're thinking, because they're controlling the medicine they need to take away the pain. Here's what's ironic. They've done double-blind studies that have actually proven this. The person is helped not because they're getting more medicine quicker rather than have to wait on a nurse, but because they think they're in control. Believing we are in control is a, look at this, is a psychological lie we tell ourselves to help us get through suffering. We start making decisions because I'm the one calling the shots. And meanwhile, God is throwing a class five hurricane at us. And Job and I and you believe that we can somehow control the wind and we can't. And so how do I actually cope with it then? What do I do with it? How do I cope with puzzling pain? So he says, teach us what we shall say to him. We cannot draw up our case because of darkness. Shall it be told him that I would speak? Did a man ever wish that he would be swallowed up? In other words, stop, stop thinking you can control it. Job, you're hunkered down. Do you think that you can stop the suffering and the pain? Verse 21, now no one looks on the light when it's bright in the skies, when the wind has passed and cleared them. Out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed with awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He's great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. What is he talking about here? Verses 19 through 20 tell us in the midst of that storm, we're hunkered down. What shall we say to him? I don't have any more of a case. It's so dark. What do I do? He says, Job, there comes a point when the storm will pass by. No one looks in the light when it's bright in the skies, when the wind has passed and cleared them. It is like coming out of the storm cellar when the tornado has passed by. And you come out and there is just a shining sun and it's shocking to you. And the clouds, the green sky and the swirling clouds are gone. But Elihu says the one we see on the other side of the storm is not the sunset in the sky, but it's the righteous one. It's the king of glory. And there's so much there that we don't have time for this morning. There's so much there like this is a season. This isn't your life. There will come a time when the storm is over. But what he's telling us is set your heart to hear from God in the midst of the storm and be confident you will see him for sure after the storm. It's almost like because of the chaotic swirling power around you is so overwhelming to you. He's saying, let that remind you that he is the one in charge of the chaotic swirling power. C.S. Lewis in Chronicles of Narnia series, there comes a point when one of the children asks Mr. Beaver, then they find out Aslan, who's a picture of God in his series, is a lion. Well, lion is not exactly something you want to cozy up next to. And they ask, is Aslan safe? And the answer is this. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. If our anger won't work to cope with the mysterious power of God in our suffering, if withdrawal just leaves us lonely and lost, gritting our teeth has left us toothless, 
We've ground them down to nubs. How do we cope? I think there's two truths that Elihu points to. First of all, fear God in humility. Verse 24, therefore men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their conceit. Fear him. Job has said this all along. Job said way back, fear, the end of the matter is fear God. Fear God, fear God, fear God. You, you may not have caught this morning when Darren read through the disciples in the storm, when Jesus stills the storm, at the, right after they see his power in the storm and his power over the storm, the Bible says, then they feared him. To fear him is to live in awe of him. Have you ever gone through a season of life where it feels crazy to you how many bad things have happened? Like, it's like, you've got to be kidding me. Of course, of course, now on top of all this, I have a flat tire. Of course, now on top of this, my car won't start. Of course, on top of... We had a particularly difficult week. I don't even remember all the events of it, the circumstances of it, but I remember we got back into town, and in one week, the garbage disposal, the microwave broke, and my car quit working. And it was like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. That, you know what you want to do at that point? Sleep till the next Monday. You don't want Thursday. What do we do? We, in the midst of that, it, it does become a God. God, I don't know. You're in control. And I'm in awe of you. It really is this kind of a mentality. God, I'm so confused right now, I'm just going to go worship. I got nothing else. There's not, I can't fix it. I can't stop it. It's, it feels like a class 5 hurricane swirling outside. I'm just going to, you're in control and I'm not. Elihu is saying, as you're hunkered down in the midst of the storms of suffering, you're, you're like the disciples on the sea, and you're terrified, and you're saying, God, don't you love us? Yes, he loves you. He speaks your name and glory. Job's name is not the only name getting whispered in heaven today. For when Satan would accuse you, my friend, Jesus speaks your name and mine if you know him. Fear God in humility. And number two, remember God is drawing you close. Elihu looks at Job and he says, has he not allured you in the past? Will he not allure you now? Father, draw me close to your side. I am prone to wander. The storm is not your wrath, but you can nevertheless use the storm to draw my heart closer to you. One day, he got into a boat with his disciples. He said to them, let's go to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. Do you ever feel like God's sleeping in the midst of your storm? And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. We're dying. Have you ever prayed, God, I'm dying here? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? God's mysterious power is at work to draw people to himself. 
Is he drawing you closer in the midst of the storm that he controls?